he's referred to as the man in the back of the room and introduced as the voice of God. He's told U.S. presidents where to sit, given Tony and Grammy award-winning celebrities direction, and lectured scads of students. But as he likes to point out, the event entertainment expert you don't know, you don't know, Anthony Bellata. And Bellatified. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever Bolotified, the first ever podcast dedicated to the exploitation of the sometimes dazzling, sometimes tragic world of event entertainment. Uh, we called it Gorilla Theater when I was growing up in it, and it's been called live and now virtual. Uh, there are events that are seeding ground for aspiring talent. And we know all about it. And so does uh, ventriloquist uh, Terry Fader and comedian Wayne Brady, whose careers started in the ballrooms and banquet halls that we are going to talk about. Uh, events are also where old school record breakers and laugh makers continue to find relevance and scads of adoring sometimes delightfully surprised fans. I'm talking about, oh, a number of groups and a number of comedians that you know. And I am here with my cohort in crime. I call her a Bolotophile. Her name is Alexis Apostolidis. And I think we get along so well because she is the Greek to my Italian. <laughs> That's very good. Yeah, that's true. You know, we're a Mediterranean sandwich. We, we are. We're a Mediterranean <laughs> sandwich. And we're, we're the most Mediterranean of that sandwich, too. You know yes. what I mean? We bring it. You know what we I mean? We do. Greeks mm -hmm. and the Italians, they bring it. You've been to Greece, right? No. Oh. No, I was supposed to go one time and had to. I shouldn't say had to. I chose to come home instead. Uh, to take care of a family member. Okay, you did the yeah. right thing. I did the and right you thing. You will go someday and you Absolutely. will feel at home mm -hmm. when you are there. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. When I was in Italy and I saw the hands flying out of the car and the yelling, I heard the yelling and the screaming. I was like, oh, okay, this all makes sense. <laughs> oh, uh, no, I can't wait to turn my Greek on. Are you kidding? It's yeah. probably one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, you have to take your daughter with you. Oh, absolutely. You have to take Izzy yeah. with you. Yes, you have to. Yeah. Yeah. She yes. loves being Greek. That is for sure. She's very proud of her heritage. Exactly. So our listeners are probably wondering why Bellotta, what in the world does he know? And why does he think he has the right to Bellottify anything? And by the way, what does that mean? What the hell is Bellottified? Well, I've uh, been in the event industry for a good 35 years now and have produced events across the United States and in Europe with big clients, small clients, important clients, uh, clients with messages, clients uh, with goals and objectives, clients that have specific needs with regard to the entertainment that they employ. And so uh, the job of producing uh, has been mine for nearly 35 years. I've been in business for 25, providing entertainment and teaching uh, for close to 20 years, uh, if you will, the discipline of providing entertainment and learning how 
to make the right decisions with regard to the event and all of the things that surround it. Uh, you know, how to make the right decisions, how to purvey entertainment, how to put people in a position of success, how to put entertainers in a position of success. And I don't like to talk about myself. But it's <laughs> not easy for me. I like to talk about you. Uh, thank you. Um, I, it's hard. And I, I know I didn't say anything just now that means anything of any relevance. So I apologize. So if you feel like you need to dig a little bit, please <laughs> dig. I think it's good for us all, myself included. I've known you a very, very long time. And yet there, I realize that there's still a lot of things that I don't know. I know you from the theatrical world, from our volunteer work with Oh, the name just went out of my head. The orga- Holmes, not Holmes, Holmes Park, but the one that where we met, a creative, uh, a creative response, creative response. response. Yeah, lo, those many years ago. As I'm getting trying to prepare some stuff, I thought, wow, there's a lot of things that I don't really know. Some nitty gritty. So I kind of want to know because I right. can. I mean, I kind of have a general idea of where you grew, but where did you grow up? I mean, in, in Florida, right? But where? I grew up in North Miami Beach, Florida, which is in Dade County, Florida, which is in the same county that Miami is in, uh, but is northernmost city in the county of Dade. So it borders uh, Hallandale and then Hollywood and then Fort Lauderdale. And it's, it's the east side of Miami. Uh, so it's the side that's closest to the Atlantic Ocean rather than not. Uh, And Miami is sort of like a grid, you know, there's the Northeast, the Southwest, the Southeast and the Northwest. And uh, I, I would say that my parents home and they still live in it and I still visit it. They bought it in 1958, just months before my brother was born. Yep, and they still live in this house, uh, is about 10 minutes from the ocean and probably 30 minutes from South Beach, you know, the, you know, claim South Beach. That's probably drive time, drive time. Uh, Yeah, so that's where I was raised 18 years of my life. Do you miss living there? You know, when I moved from there, I didn't miss it. Um, there, There is a lot about... South Florida, that's fun, but there's a lot that's really vapid and awful. And um, I don't find the people in general very hospitable there. Uh, Once you know people and they know you, it's a completely different story. But before that, it's hard to find people. Community doesn't really exist in the large sense. Um, It's very, very segregated and and people stay with the people that they know and you know there's a very large uh population in miami that doesn't speak english so there's that obstacle uh and then there are so many varieties of people truly is a melting pot all of that just exacerbates uh the situation because nobody seems to get along there and there's a there's a sense of entitlement there that i have seen nowhere else in this world. Seriously, there's a sense of entitlement. 
and it's pervasive and i i don't i don't love that it still exists uh in in miami north miami and in north miami beach in that area it still exists but the weather in december and january <laughs> i mean come on you That's can't beat true. it you know you can't beat it it's the best even living in southern california it's better oh yeah so so i miss it more now you know i miss it more now than i did when i moved here now i miss it and of course yeah. my folks are still there and i'm blessed to have them my mother will be 89 in oh, God two bless. months god willing as she says and my father just turned 88 god bless him because he had a stroke as you know last year yeah. and so uh i'm looking forward to i'm actually going to travel I'm going to travel in October and I'm going to see them. And I'm just hoping that I can do that. And there's no uh, quarantine in place that, you know, forbids me because it's been way too long. I, the last time I saw them was in February and uh, you know, it's just way too long. You know, I don't yeah. have to tell you. Yeah. I need to see them. And plus we have a few things we need to handle. So I'm really hoping to see them. But I'm blessed, you know, they're, they're still married 60, almost 69 years. And they're uh, fun to be with. They're uh, easy to be with, you know, for the aches and the pains that they have and the stroke that my dad just had. I mean, he's driving again. That's incredible. Uh, he's incredible. He's a bull. And I am uh, just makes me feel good. So I look forward to seeing them. Yeah. Well, you'll have to tell them I said hi, because you know your mother just both of them but when you speak about your mom especially she always puts a smile on my face yeah. she kind of reminds me a little of my mother i'm sure she's you know? beautiful yeah yeah she's beautiful 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 beautiful, beautiful alex beautiful <laughs> so now did you go your higher education did you go to school in florida where where, where did you go to school no, so I was lucky enough to be part of a drama department at North Miami Beach Senior High uh, that was led by a woman named Ellen Davis. And Ellen Davis was, uh, she was not playing games with her drama department. I mean, we were learning Shakespeare and we were doing hard ass plays and, tech, and we were learning technique. And uh, she was a very serious drama teacher who led many a careers to Broadway. And so I just sort of became smitten with the idea of being a performer, although it was hard for me because I really didn't have the confidence uh, to audition and like show my best self. And so it was just, it was always hard, but she was so inspirational and so she took such control that you just wanted to do it right right and at the same time i started when i was in junior high i wanted to sing uh no excuse me i wanted to join the band and my mother said joyce said uh you can carry a tune join the chorus because it didn't <laughs> cost it didn't cost any money I didn't need to have an instrument, you know? And, and like a lot of third childs, I'm the youngest of three. Um, if you are that, and you grew up with a brother and a sister who sort of half did things, never like finished things or, you know, listen, no, no shade, no shade, you know, but, and who knows, but that was sort of the impression that was left to you as the youngest. And that was the reason why you didn't get to do things then you know what I'm talking about. 
So I joined the chorus in seventh grade, which is, was a catastrophe, a disaster, because it was a middle school, John F. Kennedy Middle School. And all the choral instructor did was yell at kids for the hour that we had the class for being late or disruptive. So that was no fun. So in ninth grade, when I went to high school, because it was ninth grade back then, uh, Beth Chasen, I joined the choir and she was the choir director. And it might've been the first day or the second day she was checking people's tonality and she checked mine and I sang and she went, oh, good, Tony. And I was hooked because it was like the first sign of anything that I was good at, you know, or felt good at. And so between that and the drama department, I just decided that I was going to go to college and study musical theater, which is what a few of uh, the those students who graduated before me did. Uh, it was a well-known department led by a gentleman named Brent Wagner. Syracuse University had a very well-established musical theater program at the time, and I was accepted. And my poor parents, because <laughs> look it, unfortunately, I was raised in North Miami Beach on the other side of the tracks. You know, my, my folks worked hard and were not at all capricious with their money nor at all interested with what anybody else had. You know, they were just, they are that kind of people. You know, they're happy, they don't need a lot, and it's beautiful. But at the time, it meant I had to fight them to go, you know, 2,000 miles away and cost them 13, at the time it was like $13,000 a year. Wow. You know, when I could go to a school that was local, and we had some heated arguments, um, but they eventually acquiesced and they let me go. I studied musical theater at Syracuse for four years and I was not a star there. And I, I didn't end up being a star because I knew so much less about myself than others like Aaron Sorkin, who was a member of the drama department at the time. Really? Oh yeah, oh. I have. I, I remember. I remember wow. him very vividly, as being an, a cool guy, and not afraid to take risks. I remember him selling all of his belongings at one point in the lobby of Syracuse Stage of the theater, uh, for some reason or other, and then seeing him on a jet after he had written a few good men and you know had all the acclaim. And felt just the same about him. He was just as cool and easy to talk with for the few That's seconds that awesome. we had. You know, uh, but he was there and so was Vanessa Williams, who, oh, as we goodness. know, is a big, big to-do and a big star and a wonderful actress and uh, also says really wonderful things about the department. Uh, yeah. Because it was a great experience. You know, it was hard. We learned the ins and outs of theater, of musical theater. We learned how to how to present ourselves, how to audition, what the shows were about, you know, the messaging of the shows. We were taught about the history of musical theater. And it was, if you think about it, if my parents had been any more strict, they would have said no, you know, they, they would have won. I mean, the fact that they let me do this because I wasn't getting a medical degree 
I wasn't getting a law degree. I was getting a degree in theater, but it ended up being the right thing for me because through it, I learned a lot about myself and who I was. And I realized, I think at the time, I wasn't ready to go to New York like a lot of people were and eventually went to Broadway. I just wasn't ready emotionally, still didn't know myself. That's why I went back to Miami after school. And that's how I ended up in what I ended up in, which is this whole event world. Uh, And I actually went with my equity card because interestingly enough, my senior year, Evan Weinstein, uh, who remains a friend, was um, given the job of of directing and maybe even selecting the material for the uh, YTA tour that, um, or is it TYA, Young Theater Audience. Yeah, YTA. It was a contract uh, that Equity had with Syracuse Stage. Uh, We went through the program, so Evan directed the piece and he chose six seniors to be in it and I was cast and so were a few others and we received our Equity cards as a result. That's incredible. Well, that was going to lead me to, I mean, that you answered the, the question was what was your first paid and or professional that was it and so they were one in the same your first paid and first professional performance and and you got yeah. you get your equity card which if if you're not in the world of theater you don't know that it can be a very difficult thing to get there are different ways to go about it but it's not where you you don't just decide you're going to join the union and join the union it's, right it's not that easy it actually can require a lot of work a lot of years a lot of blood sweat and tears yeah, um, I think maybe today it might be a little less challenging, but at the time, the catch-22 was you had to be offered an equity contract to get equity, but you couldn't get an equity contract unless you got into an equity show, and you couldn't get into an equity show if you were in equity. It's very difficult if you're lucky enough, uh, as I was actually, to uh, get cast in a professional, like the, a lower theater and they offer you a contract and they cast you in the show and then you either say yes or you don't take the part. And then that's how, you know, there's the whole membership where you build up points. So there's just still different ways to do it. Yeah, so I I remember the point system as being a Mm -hmm. particular piece of being equity. And now it's a merged um, union with the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, so yeah, oh yeah, equity and the screen. No, after and SAG is I didn't realize that equity. I should know that someone lays on. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And it's interesting that I am uh, actually a member of both uh, because I I was also interestingly enough just because you asked I was paid to be a makeup double once for Robert De Niro uh, for Kate Fear. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Do you do a got, De Niro face? I'm sorry, I have to ask you that. I know nobody can see no, it. No, 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 I never, no, 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 I didn't, because it was all about the makeup. It was his makeup double, because there, the, in that movie, there's a scene where his face is just gone, you know, and it was basically that. So uh, it was an interesting day. Fun. Uh, yeah, it was an interesting day. That was, an inter- that was the day that I met goodness, 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 tall, blonde, Star is Born, Chris Christopherson was in that movie and he was in the makeup chair next to me as cool as can be. Yeah, and I think, wasn't Jessica Lang in that? In the Star is Born? Or no, 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 Kate Fear. I never, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a 
Atlas, and I didn't see that movie, but I, I want to say you might be right to that. Um, so anyway, that answers that question. Next. Yes. <laughs> you know, you've done, you've done, done your theater and um, you decide right now New York's not for you, which I totally get, did that once. Um, and you move out here and you start your own company. What, what was it that, what was the impetus there? I mean, was it you woke up one day and like, I want to start my own company? How did that all even come about? Because that's a big deal. It really didn't seem like a big deal at the time. And I think it was just, it was a combination of things. I was brought out here uh, uh, by way of a friend of mine who was still in the business, just sold his company, Imagination Entertainment, was owned by Sam Trigo. Uh, Sam and I knew each other. Uh, I had actually become company manager and director of a performance group in Miami when I moved back there between graduating from school and eventually moving here. That was something that I did for about five years and that's why I met Sam and Sam had an opportunity here in San Diego and said, I'd like you to interview. So I came to San Diego and I interviewed and I got the job of director of entertainment for a production company called Irwin Productions, a small but mighty little production company out of Carlsbad that did really good work and had some high-end clients. And so I started working there and my job was to develop a show, uh, a product. And so I did, uh, Sam had this idea that it would be called Escapade. And so we created this group called Escapade and on them, we created performance numbers, singer, dancers, that went out to the audience and interacted with people, but they were live talent. And the numbers were choreographed and sung live. And it was, you know, sort of a notch above at the time because live vocals wasn't part of the show in events, in, in, in what I'll call them rural events, <laughs> you know, common events, you know, maybe in very, very high-end ones where there was huge budgets to put on shows. That's a different story. But for the most part, even in very high-end corporate events, it just wasn't spent. The money wasn't spent on that and the technology really wasn't there anyway. We just started doing it with vocals. And at the time, using wireless mics uh, and countrymen mics in events was unheard of. It was all about lavaliers and, and, and wired mics, or if you were, you get a wire, wireless handheld. But we wanted to create musical numbers. And so we were trying to revolutionize it and we did we had success but it's also part of my job was to create an entertainment department and book entertainment uh, she had already the owner had already resources there but there was no organization and there was no right or rhyme as to how they were priced or how to describe them, you know, sort of the things that we have in place today at Bolada, I helped to put in place there. And then I took over the department, which meant I had to deal with the headliners. And for the first time in my career, I was dealing with headliners. And, and really Cheryl gave me, you know, the opportunity to do that. And it's a very intimidating thing to do when you're young, uh, yeah. right? Um, but it was my first opportunity. And uh, I worked with a few, I, I worked with people that I, I was just amazed that I was in their presence, you know? 
And I was petrified. It taught, I remember Huey Lewis, God rest his soul. I remember meeting his production manager, who's probably still around, at one event when I was working for Irwin Productions and I was advancing it because I was the director of entertainment. And he walked into the ballroom, which we spent the day setting and looked at the set, which was beautiful on stage. And first words were, that's not gonna do. And I went, oh my God, my heart sank. Oh my. And that, that was my first lesson in how to deal with the beasted of headlining and headliner production. You just, I mean, my heart sank. I had to work it out. It ended up being fine. It worked exactly the way we had it, but he put me through my paces. And that was a real uh, learning experience. That's being thrown into the fire. Right, right, exactly. And that's where I learned how to deal with headliners. And then it was through sort of, I decided after three years, excuse me to answer your question, I wasn't going anywhere. And I just felt like I'm doing the same thing and and I wasn't making any more money and I was living in Southern California where I took a pay cut and felt like I, I couldn't do it anymore. It was really hard and I needed to start making some money. And so uh, that combined with quite honestly dating somebody at the time who, I don't know, made me feel like I could do it. By, I think when I look back on it, just by uh, observing and sponging off of, you know, what I thought I saw at the time mm -hmm. and being empowered by that, I decided that I could start a business, but it wasn't something I wanted or something that I planned when I moved here. I still thought at the time that I might perform, but I also knew that I wanted to have a life and I wanted to have a house and, and I... I just didn't see that I was going to make enough money performing. Yeah. I didn't see that as my calling. Especially and, in theater. You know, it's, it's, a, it's harder to make that, you know, that living, that quality of living, you know. I mean, I, I think I was lucky enough, and I know you have been too, to make to earn a living, but it's not something you can sustain. Um, it, it's a small percentage that can sustain that. Yeah. You know. It's, and, it's and job still, to job. Yeah. And that, that's higher some on many levels. Oh, so now you, you start your business. So you started your business. How? I mean, who did you reach out to, to do this? Well, I reached out to my loving big sister Aww. who loaned me $2,500. And I got a computer and a fax machine and a pager and letterhead. And uh, my good friend, Scott Gross, who remains my good friend today, designed the logo that we still use. It's had some modifications, but designed the logo that I still use today. And I got a business license and I thought there was nothing that I thought I could, I could, it just seemed easy. Like just, I could You didn't do it. know you couldn't do it till you did it. Right. It wasn't starting the business that was hard. It's maintaining it. Like you say, in any career, it's maintaining and, you know, we look at the glories of somebody succeeding and we really don't see what it takes to get there and then maintain it. And what kind of fight you have to have in you to maintain it. It's a certain kind of person. and I'm always awed by it still. But at the time, I didn't see any reason why I couldn't. I just thought this is pretty simple. I know what I'm doing. And also, I saw an opportunity and there were a couple of reasons. We, Irwin Productions was located in Carlsbad and 
um, as lovely as that is, at the time, there was one big property there, and Irwin had the account for La Costa, which was a big property, uh, did a lot of high-end events, and they basically kept Irwin in business in the early days. As San Diego began to expand, it was too far removed from downtown where most of everything was happening. You know, the the Hyatt was coming up and uh, the Marriott was coming up again and people were coming to San Diego and the convention center was being, uh, was opening and a new, uh, you know, part of it was being planned. And so uh, she was so far removed, it became hard to service the clients here and we weren't doing it well. And the expectation was to be there and it was hard to be there and have business here. So I knew it would be easier for me because I lived down in San Diego. I knew that would be one thing. And then there was the, what was happening was this phenomenon of the other agencies or, or businesses that called themselves booking agents or booking agencies were running behind on their bills and were not paying the artists or we're paying them 60 days or 90 days later. And artists, you know that, it's hard for them. Plus, at the time, you know, they're dealing with um, sole proprietors, people who are not incorporated, um, who uh, are basically paying their players and waiting for the check, you know, because they're being hounded by the other people. And so they're waiting for a very small portion of money and it's wait- and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And it became very aggravating for the talent. So I thought, okay, I am going to pay everyone on site to start. Everyone will get a check that night. I will ask for my money in accordance, but if I don't get it, I'm still going to pay them on site because I have to be credible. That's number one. The talent has to trust me that I'm going to pay them so that if I need some flexibility, right, then I established, um, some rules of engagement, right? That we still have, right? It doesn't have to be impossible. It just has to work. And so let's have these rules of engagement. And that is sort of based on communication, right? And how we deal with people, because if we have that in place, then, then it works. And so um, it started with that, a computer, a $2,500 loan, a business license, and a talent agency license, because I also felt that there was a lot of uh, controversy at the time about people being licensed. And there was one gentleman who was in business, Bernie Kay, who was in business at the time, who took it seriously and also got a license uh, because there was so much talk about it. And it seemed to be the one thing that would help to legitimize the the agencies because there was so much financial issue with them uh, to the point where one one of the agencies that soon became a dmc apparently one of their officers embezzled a hundred thousand dollars and their the entertainers that were still owed money had to settle in court for 75 cents on the dollar which may not seem like a lot but when you think about 75 cents on the dollar for a band leader that's 75 cents that he's given away. The 25 cents was his. So it was hard and um, the licensing became an issue. And so I decided I would become licensed. So I applied for California 
talent agency license, which meant I had to be fingerprinted and I had to create contracts and um, I had to send them for approval. And I had to have a bond in place, which at the time was 10,000 is now $50,000 that we carry and uh, insurance because now I was a business. And so I needed to have some kind of liability insurance. And that's been a factor since the very beginning. But at the time it was easy. It was $500 for liability insurance. So it was relatively inexpensive. And I started in my second bedroom and I made calls and I told people I would do it better and I would do it cleaner and they would could rely on my word. And then I just said what I did and did what I said and followed through. I mean, honestly, awesome. it was nothing more than that, Alex, quite honestly. And then some imagination probably. It's a lot, but you know, I think when you're going through with it, you see your steps. So you do your steps and then you look back on it and go, wow, there were a lot of steps. It was a lot. You Um, do, you do, you do. If I look back now, I do, not that I feel that I deserve more because, you know, I'm happy. It'd be nice to have bigger things, but I'm happy. Um, but I look back and uh, I see that it was a lot and yeah. I, I forfeited a lot and I gave up a lot of opportunities and I missed a lot. And when you look at it from that perspective, I don't regret it. I have no regrets. It just gives what I do now a little bit more value. Mm-hmm. Like I can look back and I can say, you know, this hasn't always been easy. It's not easy now. It hasn't always been easy and um, it's never always going to be easy. And so it's better to learn the the hard lessons because if you can get through them, you can get through anything, right? Right. right. That's very true. That's very true. So out of all the events that you have done, is there one, and I know we're we're talking what, 26 years you've been doing events, I think? 26? Yeah, over Um, more. Yeah. More. but for, for your own company, what's your, is there one that really stands out that's your, your favorite, whether it's because you learned a lot or it was the most fun or it was the coolest people? Yeah, I, I do have a couple of moments. I, I have to say that I do enjoy most of the events, you know, and there's always good takeaway right. from everything. What makes them hard is when people make them hard. Uh, so leave that alone. Yeah. Um, there are two that come to mind. And one of them was when I just started my own business, uh, I was invited because of my partner at the time to partake in a very lavish bar mitzvah in Rancho Santa Fe. And we literally turned the property of uh, a couple and their two children into a wild jungle safari with jeeps and a map that had a little mountainous area and a little ravine that it went through uh uh, an elephant a jaguar uh we had chimpanzees we had hippopotamus in, in and it was a bar mitzvah so we developed a complete storyline around this jungle safari and when the kids got there and of course my greatest fear in any of the bar mitzvahs that I have done and let me say that I cut my teeth on bar mitzvahs growing up in North Miami Beach Florida okay (laughs) I was the only guinea on the block 
<laughs> I can still remember all of them. And so I know about bar mitzvahs and I know that if you don't grab those kids when they first come in, you've lost the race. So we had to make it really compelling. And we did, we put them through a series of exercises to be able to go on this journey. The hippopotamus you know, came out of the water, which completely surprised them. I mean, we really had to create theater. And so, and we did, and it was fabulous. And as they were going through this very well-timed out safari course around this humongous property with ravines and hills and a golf course, I mean, it's humongous. While they're doing that, the parents are enjoying balloon rides, hot air balloon rides that just go up like just like 25 feet, just so they can see the expanse, right? And so that while that's happening, by the way, they're all coming in via, uh, via buses. They're not driving, and this is a very secluded private estate, as you can imagine. So they're coming in, uh, the kids are coming in via a bus, and the parents behind them. And I've hired a, an African drumming group out of Los Angeles to be on the property in the right location so that as they're coming through in their, in their vehicles, they're hearing the drumming. So they're already feeling like, oh my gosh. The experience has begun. Right, this is real, you know? And so all we were able to, to make it really live. And then we worked with Andrew Spurgeon, who is a master at cuisine and uh, not only helped with the table decoration, the menu was exquisite and, and replicated in the highest quality a, uh, an African uh, smorgasbord, a buffet. It was incredible. Wow. And we had a pianist, I forgot about this, like the, after that whole thing, then it was party time and we had to create a whole other element for the kids with, with, you know, spraying their hair different colors, which was really cool at the time. And we put a pianist on a barge uh, in the middle of a lake and he provided dinner music for the parents out on this beautiful lake. It was gorgeous. So that will always remain a memory. That's then, incredible. I, I'm, I'm boggled by the production elements. And it's, all the pieces. The, it's what happens when a client uh, has the uh, ingenuity and the creative flair and the trust and the, and the budget and the willingness. And it was delightful that we had somebody who understood that the nuances were so important. The details were so important. And I've had other clients like that. Um, Another one is a law firm, and you, were, you unfortunately were not part of the first year, but the first year I produced a talent show for a law firm was under the direction of a woman named Amy Stover, whom I still love and cherish because the woman is as smart as can be. Uh, she's a planner who uh, can plan the wheels off anybody. I mean, she's incredible. Plus, she has Broadway experience because she was on Broadway. She was in La Mis. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yes. I did the, not know at that. At the age of 10. So you know who she played. Yeah. 
She was one of them. Yes, uh, in La Mis. And uh, she was also on Sesame Street. I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. <laughs> but she knows her business. And so when she approached me, uh, she found me through somebody else. When she approached me, I thought to myself, oh, gosh. Okay, lawyers. They love themselves. So it makes sense to make them the entertainment because they're going to watch themselves mm -hmm. you know, more enthusiastically than anything else, even if it's a headliner. So this is a good thing. But if it's not done right, it's going to crash and burn. And right is in the details. And so I proposed something to her, which I underbid, to be quite honest with you, because I still wanted to do it. But I said, these are the things we should really talk about, you know? And she bit and she came back and she said, okay, first of all, we're gonna do much more than this. She had the vision and she knew what it needed to be. And that meant getting personal with the acts in the invitation in the way we would invite them to participate because now they're gonna be leaping out of their comfort zone even though they're attorneys. Mm -hmm. So we participated in that and I got to create some witty dialogue for her to include in invitations that she, she also has this great talent and was able to massage and it was just a great inviting invitation to perform. We got all the bites and then we had to take care of them individually. Yes. Oh, you're a vocalist? Okay. You want to do this song? Okay. We need to produce this song for her with a five-piece band. And then we need to set time for that to rehearse. And we need to also have a costume and makeup. And we need to make sure she's comfortable with the process and that she can learn the material the way that she can learn the material because not everyone's a trained musician, right? So not everybody reads. Some people audit you know, have to have the track so they can learn. So we had to figure all that out. And she gave us the bandwidth to do it and then to create this incredibly timed presentation that to this day remains one of my favorite because it was so well delivered. We hired Tom Arnold to be our MC, who was delightful. I've seen and, pictures. Yes, and he was easy to be with and as snarky on stage as you needed him to be, which was hysterical. <laughs> and the peep, and, and they loved it, they ate it up. And it was such a, some of those attorneys to this day, I remain in contact. And that for me is what it's about. And Amy and I are still good friends because we got to do it right. And there was one other time, and, and this was as a result of being, in an ex, being invited to showcase my ability, not being paid, but being invited to showcase what I could do at a major national event, uh, something called Event Solutions. And uh, when I started my business, I was dating somebody who ended up working for a company called Image Events. And Image was owned by a gentleman named Robert Bottoms. And anybody who knew Robert knew that Robert was a pain in the toilet. <laughs> That's a good name. I mean, if Robert, if Ro I mean, when Robert was on site, you knew he smoked like a chimney and he loved, I believe it was scotch and he was gruff and he would tell you what you needed to do. And he was the king of malpropisms. Uh, you know, he would tell you that uh, the client's going to go ballistic on you. Um, it was funny, funny, funny stuff, but the guy was hardcore. 
and he gave me an opportunity to produce the award night for Event Solution Spotlight Award. The very first one, it was in San Diego. It was in a tent on Tideland's Park. And I got to produce the entertainment. And Miss Lee Skerritt ah. was in that show. That was the first time I worked with her. Uh, and I believe David Brennan was in that oh. show. And I did. Um, and I, I, I got my name out there. Well, as a result, three years later, Sometime later, I was asked to do a general session. The show, Avenue Q, was very popular on Broadway at the time. So it was like 2005. Mm -hmm. I guess this is like 10 years after I started my business. We did this. Um, I was invited to collaborate on the, op the opening session and the closing session, the, the sessions. And we were going to be in D.C. And it was an election year. And uh, also Avenue Q was very popular. And I wanted to do a spoof. And so I brought in a talent from LA. I brought in Jorge Luis from LA and um, Helene Weinberg uh, was talent. And they were uh, going to be newscasters. They became our newscasters that were going to provide context around our being in DC as a special event community. And they were gonna create this story that there is a group of people that are now on Capitol Hill representing us as a community. And we are going to spin this story throughout the conference because we're in DC and it's an election year. And so that's what we did. I wrote the script and Jorge was a, a correspondent and Helene was an anchor and we would cut to uh, their story and we set them up in a different room and, you know, with a desk. And then we did, we actually toured DC and did remotes with Jorge that we filmed and oh, then used my as part of the broadcast. And I just remember one of the jokes at the time was uh, something about uh, Bush being in the White House instead of around the White House or in front of the White House, you know, the Bush, <laughs> something about that. But um, we created this story and then it culminated with uh, the uh, cast that we had also been rehearsing with uh, a musical number. It culminated with them coming on stage at the second, at the closing session, because now they had made it from Capitol Hill back to the convention center. That was the story by the third day. And so now we're giving the story from inside the ballroom and people are all wondering what's going on because the cameraman is right there. And before we know it, the cast is coming out on stage and it's, they're all representing people in our industry. So there's a Steve Kemble and a Jacqueline Bernstein, but they're, but they're singers, they're musical theater singers. And we have rewritten It Sucks to Be Me from Avenue Q. I rewrote it all to be the characters of those in the industry. And it was a phenomenal showing. It How really was fun. incredible the way it just sort of came together. And I, what makes me so proud of that is people have come up to me, younger people have come up to me and said, I still remember that. Because it, it, it does what I preach. And that is it unifies things and it, it brings purpose. If you're going to have a general session and you insist on having entertainment, it should provide some purpose, some function. And what we did is we riled up this audience and we helped them to see themselves and laugh at themselves and give them a moment in the context of where we were. That's all we had to do for that particular meeting, but it worked. 
you know? It works beautifully. I yeah. mean, you get, people get to be spotlighted without having to be in the spotlight. And they love it. Jacqueline Bernstein still loves it. You know, she, <laughs> I bet. And you know, we had in that show, um, I should remember his name because we worked with him again when we were working with La Jolla Playhouse, the star of Memphis, who was up for the Tony. Yes. Was in our show. Oh my gosh. In DC. He was one of our singers. Right. It's just, you know, you work with incredible people in this. Yeah. I have to say I'm jealous I didn't get to be a part of that uh, that show because that sounds like a lot of fun. And I always loved the couple of times I got to work with Jorge and, of course, Lee. But yeah. that just sounds like it was so much fun. So much fun. It was a lot of work, but it paid off. Yeah. You know, well, and obviously, look at the smile on your... I mean, you know, they can't see you. Yeah. I can see the smile on your face, but uh, yeah. it's nice that that memory still evokes that happiness. And, you know, I learned something thing there too. I just remembered, I remember the situation now I was co-producing and there was a problem with some technical aspect of something. And the inclination was everybody froze in the technical room at the, at the front of house. And I was talent in the show as well, by the way, there was something I was also being talent and doing another number. So I wasn't running the show at the booth and something went wrong and the inclination was to freeze. And that's where I learned because I had to run back there and say, oh no, this thing goes, like it's got to go. We would have been frozen there forever. And it taught me, you have to react and respond. You cannot freeze. And if you cannot, you just cannot, you have to go on and you have to accept what mistake there is and just plow through it. And uh, that was a good learning experience for I me. It came in handy many, many, many times. Why Bolotified now? Why is it so important now? Which I think it is, but I want to hear from you why you think. What is it we have to offer? And especially where we are in the world with COVID and everything. Why now? I think the role that COVID plays is the time it has been available to sort of think on this and not feel so overwhelmed with the creative process that I have to sort of commit to for the clients, you know? So that would be one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I really don't like to talk about myself and I really don't, I'm not, I've never been good at blowing my own horn. You know, I've always, I'm always the guy that would rather say less and do more. And so, and that's how I, you know, run this business. So the idea is D'Angelo's quite honestly, and the thrust is his to make this happen. And he's the one who makes me feel like my voice has value and that people yeah. need to hear what I have to say. And I'm taking stock in that. I don't really know. Um, I know that I know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? I, if I don't know it, then I, then I don't know it. And about this subject, I know how to present. I know about flow. And I know that I know it better than most. More people know how to do it as well as I now because there is training and there's experience. When I was coming up, I was probably one of the few theater people who made their way into this at the time. Now I think a lot more have. Um, so I had a sense that 
most people didn't have. Like I could see things were going wrong, you know? I could tell, I could sense just by being in the theater, you know, you have to sort of breathe with the audience, right? You have to feel them. You can't just throw an event and, and not acknowledge that. And, and I felt like I had that in, in spades, you know? Yeah. But, but I, it took me years to realize there's value in that because in this world, everyone's a producer. And in this world, everybody knows that they can do it or they can do it better. Our clients, our vendors, uh, our attendees, everybody looks at us like, oh, well, I could have done that better if, if they know anything, right? And so there's, there's, there is a lot of pressure to know what you're doing and, and to be on your game. And I, I don't consider myself an innovator, uh, I, I know them and I see them. I see people around us. I think in terms of maybe uh, how an agency should operate and how we should function as a client tool, maybe I've been innovative there uh, because the whole idea of spotting and being on site and making sure that the client, is, as we will hear, I'm sure people say, so one of the services they love is we're there. Yep. That I started, you know, and other things, the calls, the 24 hours, the 48 hours, those things. So there's where I've been innovative there and in my creation of musical numbers that are customized and focused to whatever the client wants it to be. I, I really excel there. You right. Do very much so. I know firsthand. Right. Um, I will give myself hats for that. You know, you've cultivated this cadre of experts over the years, so you know who to call in. With this podcast as well, you know who can help talk about the, the current affairs and add to it and who can help uh, others who are in this business. That you, you know the right people who have the right things to say, and that's a talent right there. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody can maintain those relationships. Why, thank you. I mean, you know, though, that's, that's the whole team maintaining those relationships yeah. because you've had to help me do that on more than one occasion. And, and that's, that's where the it's not about us comes in mm -hmm. to our world, right? We both know that very well and we're able to put our own egos aside and deal with what's present. And that is somebody else's bigger ego. Mm -hmm. I am now getting at a point in my life where it's becoming harder for me to do that because it's a little exhausting when you see it get in the way. Yeah. And, I'm, and I see that getting in the way. I, I am all about the show is what's most important. And I think that's what defines us and enables us to walk away feeling good because, and feeling appreciated. And we've had some really hard teams, right? We've had some people who work with some people who have said to us, wow, your team is incredible. And that's, that's not learned. No, you know, it, isn't. That's, it isn't. That's experience and that's putting your uh, ego aside and understanding what's important and being strategic about how you're going to handle the situations before they come up so that you're prepared to do it in a way that makes sense. You, what is my saying it is this, people have their own reasons for not calling you. I 
people don't like me for reasons I have no control over. I know I turn people off. So I'm not going to give them any reasons. And in business, we're not going to give them any reasons. If they have reasons, it's because they've developed them on their own, right? right? And so that's in how we treat them and how we respond to when we make mistakes and when our artists make mistakes and we're all about taking accountability. That was another thing when I started, Alex. Oh my Lord. The finger pointing on event sites was maddening. And so the whole idea of, okay, we will document every word and everything will be in writing. And then we won't have to deal with this on site. Took hold. And it works now because people are calmer on site and they get the fact that we've documented it, but it doesn't work all the time. And we still get the occasional grump or the, the occasional overwhelmed. You can't help that. Right. You can't. Uh, but it's the ability to say, I'm going to take a step back right now because it's their comfort that's most important in this situation. Mm -hmm. And everything that they're saying right now reflects not on me. So let me just take a step back and deal with that. That's why they come back to us because that's what we do. That's what we do. So thank you. I'm going to continue that hopefully. And maybe we'll even have some of them here. If we're lucky and if we did it well, some of them will come on this program and talk. I, I think so. I just have one last little thing because I, I, I found this, I saw this. Um, well, quite honestly, I was uh, stalking you a little bit on Facebook. Um, I mean, we're friends on Facebook. So, and, but, and this came up and I really liked it. So I want you to just shed some light on what this means to you. The, your quote is, you don't always get the opportunities you want in life, but you do get the opportunities you get. So what does that mean to you? And how would you use that to help other people starting in this business? Well, first, I would say you have to recognize the opportunities when they come. And maybe that starts with trying to obtain some sense of gratefulness. So that when opportunities come, you're actually able to see them. Because if all you're seeing is all the problems, all the issues, you can't see an opportunity. So in this COVID-19, there is an opportunity. And some of us are right in front of it, but we're not seeing it because we're freaked out because the world is changing. And so that's one way that I mean this. And that's how I, I look I would, I would um, encourage people to look at it, look for the opportunities, look past the problems and see where the opportunities are because they're there, okay? And then secondly, life isn't always what you plan it to be and you don't always get what you want. And I would say that if I got what I thought I wanted when I was a kid, I wouldn't be here right now because this is the antithesis I'm actually doing the antithesis of what I wanted to do. And I, I think I even had disdain for what I envisioned this person is. And, you know, when I was 20, like, I will never be that, you know. And I remember um, somebody from William Morris asking me when I left Irwin Productions if I was interested in being an agent. And I said, no, I'm not. That is the last thing I want. I just didn't want to deal with all the grief, right? Because people are grief and it was, and I just didn't have the stomach for it. But the point is that life doesn't 
always bring you what, it, what you want, but it does bring you things and you have to be aware of them and you have to be open to them. And like they say, you have to be ready for them. Um, so there've been opportunities in my life that I got simply because I did something else that I may not have considered doing. And then in retrospect, it led to something much bigger and better. And so the point is don't cut yourself off and don't make decisions that things are not going to work for you or not right for you, unless you know, you know, but if you're on the fence and you don't know, or if you're confused, then that's not a place where you should be. You should be looking for opportunities. Yeah. Listen to your gut, not your fear. Exactly. Right. And be thankful for what you do get rather than for what you don't get. That's a lifelong lesson for somebody whose parents still look at the cards when they're playing at the casino and yell, of course I didn't get what I needed. (laughs) I mean, it's conditioning to believe it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I spent my entire life really feeling that. And I, I think finally, you know, you hopefully if, if you're lucky and if you're blessed and if you start to change the way you think about things, you can change things. Your whole world may not change, but you can change things. And, and that's the point. And it's, it's work. It's not easy, but it's work. Yeah. But you've made it work. And I, I, well, you know, you stood the test of time. Maybe things didn't always go according to plan, but I've, I've never seen a fail in any way or, it, or that didn't get Thank transformed you. into something really wonderful. Thank you. And you've oh. been a part of some of those moments too. And I still have pictures and I didn't even talk uh, about no, please that. Don't. Please don't. Oh, those are some doozies. I oh, know that, you were wonderful it in that. It was fun. It was a you fun were, show. Yeah. It was a oh USA show that we created for Fleet Week San Diego. Uh, and uh, we had Alex in the show. It was just an incredible show we produced for them. I still have, you know, my heart is warm when I think about that one too. It was a good cast of people, that's for sure. Yeah. Really amazing cast of people. So. Yeah. All righty. Well, All right. I guess well, if, if that's it, then. Uh, I think that's it. Well, why don't we say if there's anything that you think you may want to know about me that you can't find on the internet and don't believe it's not all true there either, <laughs> uh, just ask. Just find us at, at Bolotta, B-O-L-L-O-T-T-A dot com and click the contact button and ask us a question and we'll answer as best we can. Uh, and you can always find us where you find your five-star podcast uh, on iTunes, anywhere else. And please, if you like what you're hearing or you feel that somebody else would benefit, please share us. Uh, we'd love to know that we're helping people in the industry. Right, Alex? Right. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.